seek to draw sin from our hearts. That's what temptation is. Seeking, inciting us to sin. Does God do that? And we will answer categorically, no, never. No trial, that is, circumstance brought by God is ever for the purpose for his people of trying to get them to sin. But it is easy to think that when you understand and know that God is sovereign. But really, much like our passage, the Spirit brought him there. So it's like, I'm here and I'm being tempted. Wait a minute, there must be something wrong with this. There isn't. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Now, one other thing here, because the person that he meets in the wilderness is whom? The devil. So he is led into the wilderness. There's a reason to be tempted by the devil. And I I just want to make clear that the wilderness is not the location of where the devil is. So you don't have to go out into the wilderness to find the devil, like he dwells in the hinterlands, and you will, you will, you'll find the demons out there. No, in fact, usually Satan is most active where? Where people are. Why is he in the wilderness? Because that's where Jesus went. It is the devil following him, not Jesus having to be go out in the wilderness and try to find the devil. It's people that sometimes, I've, I've, I've seen whole articles written on that. In the wilderness you find... No, the issue is that where Jesus was, that's where Satan went, and that's where the temptation happens. The devil is not present there because it's his domain, but because he has a vital role in the testing, which is God's purpose for this retreat. Now, it does seem, even even as we're still kind of working around the the overarching details of this, that as Jesus goes, we find that he's fasting. That's what it says in in verse 2, after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And prayer and fasting most often went together. In the life of Jesus, it seems that they always went together. And so it seems that another part of this, almost again from the horizontal perspective, is that he is going out into the wilderness as he begins his ministry to fast and pray and to seek the Lord. And yet it is in this time, with this opportunity, that God says, I'm going to use that for the temptation as well. So Jesus is out fasting and praying as nearly as we can understand this. And in the midst of that, the the real reason, though, what, what God chooses to do with that circumstance is to bring the temptation. And that's third on your outline, the person the person who brings the temptation, and that is the devil. Now, there are a series of things here, questions that should instantly come to your mind, and I imagine that they probably do. The Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness, into a place what seems to us to be of great danger. The Spirit leading into a place where the devil tempts. And the meaning of the word temptation here, it's really temptation or trial. Those are the English words that we use to translate it, but it's the same word. And we'll look in a minute in James chapter 1 where it talks about a trial being something to rejoice in and a temptation being something that we should never give in to. So what is going on here? The Spirit of God is leading Jesus into a place where he is being, being incited to sin? So is God the author of temptation? That should be first and foremost really here on our minds. Because maybe if you're led by the Spirit of God, then God will try to incite you to sin. And that should be the most chilling thought that you could ever have. 
that the savior of your soul, the one who loves you and died for you, would work circumstances in such a way that he was trying to get you to sin. Does God do this? If you just take our passage, I don't even say it face value, if you don't understand the context of it or scriptural principles, you might say that. The spirit is leading and the devil is tempting. Well, I think that gives us our understanding. Turn to James chapter 1. Because the first question we will answer is, does God himself seek to draw sin from our hearts? That's what temptation is. Seeking, inciting us to sin. Does God do that? And we will answer categorically, no, never. No trial, that is, circumstance brought by God, is ever for the purpose for his people of trying to get them to sin. But it is easy to think that when you understand and know that God is sovereign. But really, much like our passage, the Spirit brought him there. So it's like, I'm here and I'm being tempted. Wait a minute, there must be something wrong with this. There isn't. How to are we to understand this? James chapter 1 beginning in verse 2. Now, you're very familiar with these verses, but I want you to see the interplay here that relates to the themes going on in Jesus' temptation. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's the same word. It's the root word for for the same word that, that Satan does, the thing he's doing to Jesus, which is tempt him. And it is the same word that we, that we find down in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. What God brings are trials. That is circumstances sovereignly brought into our life to conform us to the image of Christ. And that is why he can say, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so the first thing we can say, the reason that the Spirit of God is leading Jesus into the wilderness is not to draw sin out of his heart, but to use that circumstance to to demonstrate for Jesus, since he already is the image of Jesus, to demonstrate the reality of his being Christ himself, of his being the Savior, the Anointed One. Well, then verse 13, though, here's the problem. As you work your way down through this, again, recognizing that God is sovereign, it can be very easy to get to the end of a trial that God has brought and say, it was really easy for me to sin in that. That was really hard. That trial of the difficulty that happened when when, when I lost my job, when my wife left me, Lord, I know you're sovereign in these things, and I know ultimately these come back to your hand. That was really hard. Maybe you tried to get me to sin. And we would have a tendency to say something like verse 13 of James 1. Or really, he answers what we might say in our hearts. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. That is, when you are in a trial that is very difficult, and evil rises up from your own heart, and you desire to sin, and it's making it easy for you to sin. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, as in fact he proves here, back in our text, when we get back there, he cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. He never brings circumstances for the purpose of getting you to sin. Well, what's going on then? In our text in James, what is happening is that those trials reveal the sinful nature that remains within, the sinful flesh that lies there. And that sinful flesh rises up in those temptations to try to draw us away. See, it rises up in those trials to tempt us to sin. Continue reading with me, verse 14. But each one is tempted, that is, lured towards sin, when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it It brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He is not using this to try to make you sin. It is your sinful flesh within you. Well, then you might be saying, well, why are you talking about this? Because in the passage with Jesus, it's the devil 
that is tempting him. Here's how this works. Right? You cannot blame the devil for the sinful temptations that rise up from within you. James makes that clear. They're yours. You get full credit for all of them. But here's what Satan does, and here's how he tempts. He uses the circumstances, brings the pressure. He intends it for the very purpose, knowing that your sinful flesh will respond with sin or with the temptation to sin. He brings the pressure, brings the circumstance to then draw that sinful flesh out and incite you to follow your sinful flesh and sin. He doesn't jump inside your heart and bring it out. It just comes. Because that's who you are. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't attach himself to some part of you and make you sin in that way. He draws it out through the circumstances that he purports to bring. But we remember that all of that is overseen by God, who is the one, even though Satan thinks he's bringing the circumstance, it is God who is ordaining it. Now, there's much there. And we don't have time this morning to flesh all of that out. But I'll simply, let's simplify that. Is it then God who tries to draw sin of our hearts? Never. He is using the temptation to conform us to the image of Christ. It is our sinful flesh that in the midst of a trial, a difficulty, then has a desire to sin. And we have to battle that with all the resources we've been given. And it is the devil himself who seeks to use those things to put us in places where that sinful flesh will arise so that we will fail. That's his goal. God puts us in those situations so that we will succeed. And believers can and should, and that brings us exactly back to Matthew chapter 4, to see that Jesus does. He sets the pattern of being one who is led by the Spirit into a situation that Satan uses to bring temptation, but that God uses to bring victory. Guys, that's your whole life. That's your whole life. As the enemy fights against you and God sovereignly ordains your circumstance, that he allows you victory through Christ. He brings the trial, you provide the temptation, and Satan uses it. Right? He seeks to bring that as much as possible. That's as far as we can go this morning there. But there then is probably should be another question that is coming to your mind. It says that he's coming to tempt Jesus. No, no, wait a minute. How can the Son of God be tempted? We just read in James chapter 1 that God cannot be tempted by evil. Well, that's true. And yet Jesus is what? He's both God and man. And man can be tempted. Now, let's be careful here because then some have tried to move right, directly from there to say it was close. Yes, he was God and man, but he, he almost sinned. He could have sinned. In each place here, he might have entirely ruined it by his man-side sinning. Was it possible for Jesus to sin? The answer is no. Why? We call this, it's, it's the doctrine of impeccability. That is, that although Jesus was fully man and could fully experience every temptation, in fact, to the fullest, that by nature of his two natures, God and man, he could not sin. I'll say it this way, the impeccability of Christ means that he was God and man in such a way that he could not enter into sin. But the temptation of Christ, or really the humanness of Christ, means that he was man and God in such a way that he could know and experience the temptation of sin without succumbing to it. I'm not going to try to work around all the ramifications of that. But the Bible indicates clearly that the temptation for Jesus was real, but that the potential to sin was zero because he was the Son of God. We're going to have to hold those things in tension. And yet Hebrews 2.18 is very clear. For since he himself was tempted, in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So you may never say, well, he was the Son of God. You said he had no potential to sin. I have potential to sin. So the temptation isn't the same. The Bible says you're wrong. In the sense that Jesus' temptation enables him to know what you are going through. And you take that by faith. Knowing that he was fully man and knowing that the Bible says he was fully tempted. And we won't try to flesh out how, how I think that would be properly explained. We don't have time to do that this morning. 
but we've got to take it for what it is, understanding that Jesus did, in fact, suffer true temptation, and this is a real temptation for Jesus' humanness. Now, I guess maybe one more question, maybe three. Why was this necessary? Now, we've already talked about that a little bit, but Hebrews 4.13 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So again, he goes through this temptation that he might be able to empathize with ours and demonstrate the reality of his triumph over it. Now, I'd like to spend the rest of my time, and here's where you're going to have to either, the little blank between three and four is not going to be enough for this. So you'll probably have to go on the back of your bulletin, or maybe two or three, I don't know. Because I'd like to spend a little bit of time on the origin of Satan. Who is the tempter who is here? Who is this devil? That's what he's called here. Now, he's going to have three separate names in this very passage. He's going to be called the devil, he's going to be called uh, the tempter, and he's going to be called Satan. And we'll talk about all three of those titles. But here we're introduced to him as the devil. And really, the word is slanderer or accuser. It becomes a title for Satan, really his name. But it really represents what he does. He is the one who slanders. He accuses, constantly saying, this one is not worthy. This should not be done. This is not right. The evil one himself holding God seemingly to his own justice is how that slandering and accusing works. We'll flesh that out a little bit more. But there are few doctrines which are more disbelieved, which are, which are more cast aside than this one. It's much like the doctrine of hell that we discussed several weeks ago. People refuse these days to believe in an eternal hell. If you are enlightened, you don't believe in such a thing. How could you believe that there would be a God who would send someone to an eternal hell? And so you might even hold on to the concept of the God, but you're going to get rid of eternal hell. Well, here's another doctrine that is quickly passed aside as myth. What a real devil? Come now. Come now. We're an enlightened society. We don't believe in, in, in little creatures running around with pointy ears and pitchforks and tail. Well, we don't believe in this. Well, no, we don't. But as believers, we believe in a personal, a real person who is the devil. That is his name, that he is real in history, that he is an individual, that he has a will and desires, he has power, and he actually works. And we believe that because the Bible says it. This is not a metaphor for evil. Jesus is real, the wilderness is real, the historical situation is real, the temptation is real, the devil is real. Unless you want to turn all of Scripture interpretation on its head, decide everything else has been real up to this point, and this is the manifestation of evil in the heart of Jesus, or something like that. You're going to have to go with, you're going to have to have an understanding of, this is a real person. Now, it's fascinating. I would have loved for some of you to be at our jail for our underground church last night. I was sitting in an office trying to answer lots of phone calls. I can't find my clue. I don't know who the contact is. I'm doing that. But meanwhile, they're interrogating the prisoners. Now, nothing too harmful, mind you. It's, it's okay. Too harmful, I say. But no, what was really going on was it, was it was Mark and Robin Dew, and they functioned wonderfully in this role. But they would take some of the kids down. They would sit them down, and Mark would begin to pepper them with questions about their faith. And we told them, it's a game. We understand that. But what we want you to do is when you get this, these interactions, we want to use it as a test for you to see, can you answer the questions? That's what, you're not supposed to say foolish things like, oh, I will not tell you a serial number. You know, no, you're supposed to try to respond. And, and essentially what we said was, look, anything that's some kind of question about your Christianity, of course you would respond to that because you would want, if this were a real-life situation, you would want the interrogator to know about Jesus. And so you would be trying to convince him to trust in Christ. And so Mark's peppering them with all these questions, and he was, he was, he was zeroing in on these kinds of points. How can we as an educated society believe in a devil, believe in a hell, how, how is that possible? Why do you believe in such foolish things? Look, be liberated from your foolish thinking. Much like the atheists today. They're getting more and more strident 
and the foolishness of believing in a God, and particularly of believing in devils and hell. They say, how can God, or how can, how can, not only how can God exist, but how can you believe in, in like a personal devil? Well, we believe in him, the same reason we believe that there is a God and that there is the Son of God, because the Bible tells us so. That is your answer. But I want to flesh it out a little. Where did he come from? What is his purpose? What is his power? How do, how do we recognize him? First, let's go to his origin. And you're going to need to get your fingers ready because we'll be doing some Bible turning. All right, if you have your... Uh, your electronic versions, I guess I won't hear the pages turning because I always love to hear that, but uh, I'll tell you when we're going to turn. We're not going to turn to this first one. If you want, if you want to, so if you're trying to keep some kind of notes here, this is Satan's origin. And Satan was created, the Bible indicates to us, as a God-honoring angel. So we, we get into the uh, whole idea of, of demonology, of angelology, demonology, the spiritual forces that were created, essentially, or in the beginning, all created as what we would call term angels, good spiritual beings. When were they created? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but in Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, when God is speaking with Job and confronting him about his knowledge, Job, what do you know? How, how can you complain against me? Were you here when I did this and this and this? And he refers back to the creation and he says to Job, Job 38, 4, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who set its measurements since you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And then the phrase says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The word sons of God there is used for angels. And it would seem that somewhere before the creation of the physical heavens and earth, the spiritual beings were created. We don't know exactly when. Seems that they're tied closely together, not eons or ages between those two things, but that the spiritual beings are created and then the physical world is created and it would seem that one of the reasons for that is that it delighted the Trinity to demonstrate to the spiritual beings the creation of the earth because they shout for joy as they watch the Son of God. Remember, He's the one who creates. As they watch the Son of God create, and they shout for joy with Him, all good spiritual beings. And at that time, they were all good. Now, turn to Ezekiel 28 because you're thinking, well, if they're all good, then how do we get Satan? If he is an evil spiritual being, where did that come from? Well, our best understanding is from Ezekiel 28 to get an idea of, of the origin of Satan, the being Satan. Ezekiel 28 verse 12, and there's much here, and, and really it's, it's prophecy to human kings, and yet it seems that in several of these prophecies here in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, that the human king being referenced in his evil is really traced back to the origin of that evil, which is Satan himself. That seems to be what's going on here. So in Ezekiel chapter 28... Beginning in verse 12, we, we get a picture of this. It's, it's with the king of Tyre. He says, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. Now, again, he's addressing it to a human king, but what he says about this human king seems to go far beyond anything that could be ascribed to a human. And he says this, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, referencing the time of creation. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, and the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day when you were created, they were prepared. Again, seeming to reference not the king of Tyre, but the evil one, or really at this point, the good one, Satan. It goes on to say, verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers, essentially the highest of the highest order of angels. Seems to be the implication of verse 
14. You were on the holy mountain. He says, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created. He began, seems to us, as, as the perhaps the most beautiful of angels, the most powerful of the angels, cre- a created being, and blameless, as everything that God originally created was perfect. Adam and Eve were perfect. The angelic beings were perfect. The creation was perfect. No fault found in it whatsoever. But then, this chilling phrase at the end of verse 15, until unrighteousness was found in you. Now, how does that work? How does a perfect being develop unrighteousness? Can I use my my favorite phrase? I don't know. But I do know what it looks like. I do know how to label it because Scripture does. So let's go where Scripture does in this. What did it look like when unrighteousness was found in him? That is very clear. And that's really all we need to know. There's, I mean, there's, there's, I couldn't give you the amount of books written on the origin of evil in the heart of a perfect being, something like that. I mean, it's like how many angels dance on the head of a pin? You, you just go around and around. How do we know? Well, let's go with what we do know, which is what it looks like when unrighteousness is found in a perfect being and the most powerful, it seems to us, of all beings. What does that look like? Turn to Isaiah chapter 14. So a little bit backwards in your Bible. Isaiah 14. And here again, we have a prophecy to human circumstances which seem to reference what is behind those human circumstances, that is, the sin or the intent of the evil one himself. And this is chilling in many ways because what it will reveal to us is that the sins of the nations of pride, as we will see, and then the sins of our own heart of pride really are all mirrors and and mimicking the sin of of the first one who was proud, that is, the enemy of our souls. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. And in fact, the word there, star of the morning, it's one word in Hebrew. And if you transliterate it, you get Lucifer, the son of the morning. That's why we give, that's another title that we give to him. Right, so it, it describes what happened, or, or it describes essentially his characteristic, that he was the star of the morning. That's why we understand that he was the greatest of the created beings. He's the one that you see first. He's the one that shines the brightest among the created beings. But it says, how you have fallen from heaven. Son of the star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, and here's where we see what happens when a, the most powerful created being And a being that is perfect sins. This is what he does. He says, I will ascend. But you said in your heart, and remember, unrighteousness was found in you and found in the heart of Lucifer, who would then, as it were, become the devil and Satan and the accuser and others. He says, I will ascend into heaven. Five I wills here. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. And summing all of this up, I will make myself like the most high. I am not satisfied with created status. I'm not satisfied with being, with being underneath, subservient to the one who created me. In my beauty and in my power, I deserve to be first. Have you heard echoes of that somewhere? How about in your own heart? How about continually, I deserve to be first? And this is, of course, what the sinful world, what the unconverted world lives for. I deserve to be first. There's echoes here of Romans 1. Although they knew the true God, they did not acknowledge Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of birds and animals and crawling creatures. 
their idolatry being the expression, not simply of the worship of other things, but the worship of themselves because they worship idols to get what they want. That's why you worship idols. It's not about the idol. It's about what the idol gives you. And so therefore, all idolatry is essentially directed back towards self. I will receive what I want. I will be pleased. I will have. I will, as it were, ascend above the Most High. I've put those idols in the place of you. That's the sin of Satan, but that's the sin then of all unbelievers, ultimately. The pride in their hearts, which refuses to be dominated by, refuses to be, to be led by a holy God, refuses to submit to him, but instead says, I will ascend. Now, our understanding of Isaiah 14 is helped a bit when it speaks of his, how you have fallen from heaven. Jesus says in Luke 10, 18, he said to them, I saw heaven, excuse me, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. It seems that he is alluding to perhaps this very passage. And so it helps us in our understanding that this is describing the fall of Satan himself. Right, and that so Isaiah twelve is is very likely describing <clears throat> excuse me that event. So he was a created, he is a created angelic being. He then through when as sin, the sin of pride was found in his heart, he becomes, as it were, a demon, an evil uh, spiritual being, and he becomes this through uh, proud rebellion. Now. And now, there's more to this. It says that in, in the Bible, we look in various places, and it talks about the fact that he took a number of the heavenly hosts with him, a third of them, it seems, best for us to understand. So of the myriads and myriads of, of the spiritual beings created, Satan took a third. We don't know exactly how many that is, but it seems like it's a lot. Enough, essentially, to cover the earth with his power. It's enough to do that where there are demons, not behind every bush, but there are demons that are accomplishing things everywhere or nearly everywhere as, as we understand it. So he rules them and he took them with him when he fell. They were defeated by God and he cast them out of heaven. But there's a second part to this fall really of Satan where first you have the fall, he becomes a demon, he becomes one who then sets himself up against God. But then the second part of his fall is where he is judged for this. So I want to reference that just very briefly in Genesis chapter 3. You don't need to turn there. Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, remember the serpent was the, was the created being uh, or the physical being that Satan inhabited. It says, because you have done this, that is tempt Adam and Eve and, and, and then make it easy as it were for them to sin. It says, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. That's the curse on the physical being. But then it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. It has nothing to do with women not liking snakes has everything to do with the fact that that's the reference to the seed of the woman, the godly seed ultimately, who, who, would, who would culminate in the person of Christ, who will then defeat Satan. And so as a result of his rebellion, here we have in this fall of Adam and Eve, you really have, a, as it were, the, the judgment on Satan for his fall, even more than being cast from heaven, now being defeated by God himself in a final way where he is crushed. So that's our understanding of the origin of Satan. He came began as, a, as the highest of the created beings and ends essentially as the lowest, as the lowest. Now, what's his purpose? What's his purpose? And this is important for us to understand because then we can track down his schemes. You see, we have to know this. Last night we were talking about Ephesians chapter 6 where it says, be strong in the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He is scheming. But what are his schemes? Are his schemes to make you pay taxes? Are his schemes to, to turn our country into a, a, a totalitarian state? I can't even say that word. 
into, into a socialistic state? Are those, the, are those the depths of his schemes? So we must fight those. We must not be socialists. We must not allow that. Those are not the depths of his schemes. He might use all of those things to accomplish his purposes, but we need to understand what he really wants to do so that we actually fight the real battle, the spiritual one, not the physical. So what is it that he wants? Well, he really essentially wants three things. You could probably break it down more, but he wants to thwart the plan of God. He does not want God's plan to go forth. And this is for the end reason that he does not want God to be glorified. So in the garden, what does he do? He comes to tempt Adam and Eve, who are perfect, so that they will fall into sin. I've thwarted God's plan. No. Then God says, by the way, all along I knew this, and here's the prediction that you're going to get crushed as a result of that. Well, then he tries again during the time of Noah. And so the the thoughts of man's heart were always evil continue. So what does God do? It incites God, as it were, to bring the flood upon the earth to destroy all men except for Noah and his family. And so Satan's attempt to thwart the plan of God and the destruction of the earth because of its sin is thwarted by God holding Noah and bringing about his righteousness and then saving him. And we could go on in the history of Israel in this very temptation that we see here in the Antichrist who will be the representation then of of Satan's final, his plan to be worshipped by men and then at the end of the millennium when he seeks to thwart God's plan again. There are many more that we could discuss. So he wants to thwart the plan of God. He wants to destroy the people of God. First, he wants to destroy the people of God in general. That is all of God's created people, every one of them. And so his goal for those who are unbelievers is to keep them unbelievers so that they will go to eternal hell. And by the way, not like he is directing that, like he sends them to hell and then he, then with his pitchfork, he, you know, in his trident, he, he, he tortures them. No, he goes to eternal hell with them. It is God who sends people to hell, not Satan who sends them to hell. He blinds them so that they end up there. He blinds them so that they cannot, they do not turn from that fate and flee from the wrath to come in repentance. That's his goal to take as many to hell to suffer with him there because every person in, in his mind, Every person that is in hell is not giving glory to God. Now, we don't have time this morning to talk about the grand reversal even of that. But that in his mind is what will do it. They will not worship God here on this earth, and they will not worship him through all of eternity. So he has stolen from the glory of God. That's Satan's view because he's not omniscient and he's not God. So he seeks to destroy the people of God. And then, of course, he seeks to keep any from coming to Christ. So he will do all that he can so that God cannot call out for himself a people for his for his son, a bride for his son. So they cannot call believers to himself. He seeks to do everything possible to twist and distort the truth so that the gospel is not properly presented so that those whom God has chosen from before the beginning of time will not come to him. He seeks this task. He's thwarted in it, as, as we will see. Everywhere that he tries to thwart God, he is, he is himself blocked in every way, defeated totally. But this is his desire. So he will twist everything possible as though he could keep even those whom God has chosen from coming to Christ by muting the gospel, by destroying gospel witness, by killing people through the events and circumstances of kingdoms and nations. He will do all of this so that he can destroy the people of God. That's why 1 Peter 5.8 says this, be a sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That is not a little children's verse. It is one of the more chilling verses in all of the Bible because the, your adversary is strong. Now, he cannot defeat you, but, but why then do we have the picture of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4? Because we see that Satan cannot defeat you ultimately through temptation if you are Christ's. So you must flee to Christ that your adversary, the devil, will not defeat you. So there's fear in the sense that if you, do, if you are not in Christ, then you cannot win. But there is joy that if you are in Christ, you cannot lose. 
but you must be in him. So he seeks to destroy the people of God, and then really all of that is to replace the worship of God. The greatest means of stealing glory from God is to have God's creation worship him, that is Satan. So he strives for this continually now in the form of idols. He'll accomplish this more fully in the person of the Antichrist in the end times. That is setting up his own pawn so that the vast majority of the world at that time in a physical way and in real history bows down to worship him and he will say, I have one. And little does he know that even at that very moment or during that very time, his final demise is being planned. But that's where Satan is running all of his history to where he is worshipped by the nations in physical form as he is being worshipped now by the nations in idol form. Because every form of worship that is not the worship of the true God, Paul reveals to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, is really a worship that is inspired by, is, is, is produced by, is driven by demons who are driven by Satan. 1 Corinthians 10, 19. What do I mean then, says Paul, that a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to be sharers in demons. Anything that is not the worship of the true God is demonically driven worship. That is the worship of Satan, essentially. And so his goal is that we would worship anything other than God. And understand that those idols, don't, you don't have to be in a pagan temple to do that. Because we've stripped away now the, inter, the idol intermediaries, haven't we? As an enlightened society, we don't go to temples and bow down. We just worship those idols directly because what, what are stone idols for? They're to give you what you want, your, your crops, the rain that falls from the sky, your sexual pleasure, whatever it might be. That's what they were there for. Well, you just remove that intermediary and go right for the pleasure, right for the crops, right for the stuff. That's what we in an enlightened age have done. And yet we worship, we, we demonically worship all the same. The culture then, apart from Christ, driven by Satan, driven by a worship of him. And that's what's really going on. When you unmask that, it makes everything that isn't the worship of Christ, it, it bears its true character. It isn't just mundane things that the world does. It is a worship. It's demonic worship. I'm not saying the world understands that. I'm only saying that that is the reality of what is going on. And that's what Satan desires. And, my, and men's minds are blinded to that. They think they are actually accomplishing their own purposes. They think they're even worshiping actual other gods when there are none. And they're really worshiping essentially the highest created being who is not in any way a god, even as they think they're worshiping themselves, which is, which is the form through which that comes. Now, Satan's power, what kind of power does he have? So that's his purpose. That's his goal. So you can always identify what he's trying to do if he's driving away from the truth of God, the, the salvation of God's people, and the worship of God. Anything that steals from that is the purpose of Satan, and so you must avoid it. You must run from it. But what is his power? How much power does he have? Well, he's the chief of the demons, so he is extremely powerful, the most powerful of spiritual beings. He's the accuser of the brethren, and we know that this is very powerful as he accuses us, at least it's powerful to us in our lives, Zechariah 3.1 says, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. He's not worthy. You can't accept this one. Your justice keeps you from taking any of these because they're all sinful and I know it. Look at Job. You, know, you, think, he's so, you think he's so righteous. He's not. You're just protecting him. He's a sinner at heart. He doesn't actually fear you. Remove your protection and show him to be the sinner that he actually is. And God says, well, he trusts me. He has faith in me, and so I'll show you the reality of faith. But anyway, we don't have time to go there this morning. Chief of the demons, accuser of the brethren, prince of the power of the air. He's been given a certain amount of dominion over the earth, its functions, and its people. That's what Ephesians 2.2 says. He's the ruler of the world. 
And we know, says 1 John chapter 5, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, not over and above God's power, but by God's very decree. Again, no time to wrestle through the ramifications of that this morning, but it is something to carefully consider. He is active, he is alive, he is well. He's called a roaring lion, he's called the ruler of the world, but here's what I want to remind you of. He is a finite creation. Either he nor his demons can read minds, they cannot sovereignly know the human heart, they cannot infallibly predict the future. He is very wise, as it were, that is a great predictor of what people will do. He understands patterns, he knows how to use the things of the world. He has power to influence circumstances. He can bring down fire. He can bring death to people. And he has, he can, he, so he can influence circumstances and events for his own purposes. But he is not omniscient. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-everywhere. He is a finite created being. And he will have his privileges fully revoked at the end of time. And even now he is restricted. And even in Matthew chapter four, we see he's being used as a pawn for the purposes of God, even in the temptation of the son of God. Even there, Satan thinks he is operating according to his own desires when really he is accomplishing the will of God. Does that remind you of anything else? It's just like you. You may even think you are accomplishing your own things in your own life and that God is not sovereign over you. He is sovereign over all. He is, his will is most free. Yours is bound by his always. I mean, do you really think that if Satan's will is bound by God, that yours is not? It is. Now his method, what does he do? He does this through lies and deceit. Satan's primary method of taking people captive in the moral realm is to influence them to believe his lies and thus abandon the truth in their thoughts and actions. John eight forty four. you are of your father, the devil, you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. A lack of truth kills. And that's exactly what happened in the garden when Satan questioned the truth of the word of God. You shall surely not die. He told a lie. They did die. And by deceiving them into believing the lie, he took their life. Now, God is sovereign over life and death. We understand that. But that's what lies do. Don't think that lies are petty little things, petty little white things that you tell. Oh, you know, you tell a lie about, you know, I, I, I watch this much TV and I really actually watch. Okay, but those are all reflections of any lack of truth being the means by which people are murdered and killed. That is spiritually. And this is what Satan does. Always he seeks to lie about the word of God, about the character of God, about the promises of God, about the work of God. He denies it all, subtly mixing truth with error. Again, you remember what he told Eve in the garden. And the day you eat of it, essentially, you won't die. You'll be like God. You will know good and evil. Now, he was right. You will know good and evil. God knows good and evil, but you won't be like God in his character and nature. In fact, you will have fallen from fellowship with God. So he mixes truth with error and kills. That's what he does. Don't buy the lie. And that's why you need to fight the spiritual battle because the lie is subtle. And that's why at times... Those who, it, it seems that those even in persecuted countries who maybe see this battle a little bit more clearly, they see how Satan is working. They're more aware to his schemes and oftentimes they, they run from temptation and they pursue godliness, excuse me, in even greater ways. Then we who are lulled to sleep by our seeming, we don't see the activity of Satan. Where is he? He's everywhere. Not he himself, but his minions, his workers, as he directs them. And all of it is a lie about the person and work of God, the word of God. So he has infiltrated the church so that through the church, he might 
demonstrate he might perpetuate his lies in watering down the gospel and reducing and really and really mitigating against the truth of it and in twisting doctrine so that people believe wrongly unto their own destruction and so we have to be careful he's not obvious he's not upfront in our culture as perhaps he is even in more so in some others he does whatever it takes that is his work so as we consider the nature of his origin, of his purpose, of his work, are we prepared to fight? Jesus was, and he won. We as believers must also be, and we will win. Now, I didn't get to the last piece, which is the preparation for all of this. That's his fasting. He was fasting and praying. He was seeking the Lord, and in the midst of that, seeking the Lord is being tempted. And he overcomes that temptation. But here's the questions that I have for you to finish. One, are you filled with the Spirit of God? That is a believer and dwelt by the Spirit of God, yes, but taking hold of all the means that God has given that you are filled up with His purposes, His desires, through your understanding of the Word of God that He illumines to your mind, and then the the changing of the directing of your will and your affections towards the things of God that you pursue and respond to. Are you filled with the Spirit this morning that you might be led by the Spirit of God? So that even when he leads you into the most difficult of circumstance of trial, it will not be a temptation that destroys you. You will win, as it were. You will succeed. We are to follow Jesus in this. Are you aware of and battling against the schemes? Number two, are you aware of and battling against the schemes of the devil, particularly in his attempts to tempt you to sin? Do you recognize the temptation? Are you putting on his spiritual armor? If you are, then no temptation has overtaken you. But such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Are you putting on the full armor that you will endure? Or have you gotten lazy? It's just America. Where's the devil here? Oh, you know in your mind he's here, but you're not putting on your armor to fight against him. And then third question, are you serious enough about accomplishing the will and work of God? that you will run to him, pursuing him in prayer, as Jesus did, not only here in Matthew 4, but also all throughout his life, considering it even important enough that you would go without your daily food. We didn't, we didn't get there this morning, but that you would, you would go even without what are your basic necessities. Not for 40 days and 40 nights, you don't try that. But it's important enough that you would restrict for yourself that which you need to survive for a period of time to demonstrate how clearly and how desperately you need the power and strength of a holy God. That's the battle you're in. Let's take up the armor and fight that we might be and follow in the footsteps of Jesus in overcoming temptation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you describe for us even the ways in which our enemy comes to lie to us so that we might be aware of his schemes and you give us the perfect truth so that we can compare everything to that and not be led astray. Father, I thank you that you give us your spirit that we might understand that truth and be able to properly apply it so that we are not duped into thinking that the lie is truth. And I pray that as we seek to honor you this week, being filled with your spirit and being directed by you through your word, or that you would be honored and pleased as we battle sin and as we put on righteousness so that the world would know that you are a great and mighty God. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen.
Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.